0: Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. In this episode, I'm joined by a talented and community-oriented local chef who joins me to talk about his background, his restaurant, and the ways in which he has given back to his community. Enjoy. All right. I am here with a local celebrity. He's referred to as The Chef. And no, I'm not talking about Ray Kwan. <laughs> nice. I, I, knew I, do. I knew you'd appreciate that. I do appreciate that. That's incredible. He is one of my faves, that's for sure. All right. When my yeah. daughter came home and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be working at Vita Cantina potentially for chef." Um, That was the first thought that came to mind, Raekwon, but um, I don't even know if Raekwon cooked. Oh, he does. Yeah, that was the whole thing. That's why that's why
1: they called him the chef in the uh, at the house, at the Wu-Tang house when originally because he was always throwing it down.
0: Oh, I did not know that story.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Him and Ghostface always used to throw it down together.
0: Okay. yeah, I'm learning something new and I pride myself on being old school and knowledgeable. And here I am. Thank you for that. (laughs) And nice. for those of you who aren't familiar, we're talking about the Wu-Tang Clan. I'm sure some people are um, insulted right now that I even had to explain that. <laughs> That's okay. We're trying to help them out. I had a strong feeling that you would know the reference uh, based on uh, where we saw each other or where I saw you recently. Right, right. Where you didn't say hi. Where my my say- bad! Like, I didn't want to roll up, you know, in the dark, like, hey, are you...
1: Uh, that's a, that's what we're supposed to do, you know. That's like the reason why we were there is because it was like our safe place. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh my god! Yeah, you walk into a place like that and you see that many people of color. You're like, I just want to say hi to everybody here right now. You know, like that's
0: that's our safe haven right there. I know for future reference, my bad. Please forgive me. Mm. At least it seems as though I've, I've been forgiven since you're here today. Yes, definitely. All right. So um, Chef Vargas is joining me here. He is currently the um, head chef and owner of Vita Cantina, which is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, And I connected with him through my daughter, who recently got a gig there and is enjoying it, learning a lot. Um, She has nothing but great things to say. And by the way, had me driving through damn near a blizzard to get to work because she wanted to be there so bad. And I'm like, yo, are you serious? <laughs> like, <it's> a- <laughs> I, I was surprised. White knuckled. I said, your pops must have been white
1: knuckled the whole way here. Come yo, on. Yo,
0: <laughs> we spun out. We spun out on a <laughs> turn, and I look at her and I'm like, yo, you have me driving in this kind of weather to go to work. Is that important to you? And it is. She loves working there. That's she's exactly. learning a ton, loves the team. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I, I she's a, a delighted. She's... Absolutely incredible. I mean, she's her work ethic. I remember you sitting down with me when I when you came in. You're like, you won't meet another great work ethic like this. And you are absolutely right. She holds down a station better than some grown men. That's yeah. for sure. So it's, a, it's
0: cool to see at such a young age that we have some hope in our youth. And, you know, interestingly with her, and thank you for that feedback. Um, so years ago, her first job was at Water Country. And I didn't know how she was gonna do with that and did really well with it. Um, Subsequently, the following summer, um, it was the summer of the pandemic and she decided that she wanted to work again. And I'm like, hold on, you wanna go back in the hot kitchen in the summer with a mask on? Like, are we that unbearable at home (laughs) that you wanna work in those conditions during a pandemic? She's like, no, it's not a big deal. And never complained or called out sick, it's remarkable.
1: It's, it's insane to see that, you know, and you, we get them here and there. And for some reason, I've been blessed with them. Her and our our chef de cuisine, Georgia, they get along so well. And I just love seeing the woman connection, especially in a male dominated uh, occupation to see them thrive so well and to have that strength in uh,
0: with each other. It's I love it. Right on. And thanks again for nurturing that. And so speaking of the pandemic, that's when I really started chefing myself. That's when I started cooking. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to that, please don't judge me. Uh, prior to that, I was simply in the spaghetti family, like boil some spaghetti, get Come some on, tomato sauce. I was no. real basic with it. No way. Not with uh, your not with your roots. There's no uh, way. Hold on. There's a story here, <laughs> though, and we're, it's eventually going to tie into you. So <laughs> during the pandemic, I couldn't go visit my mom who lives in Boston. My family's from Haiti. Mm-hmm. and I was missing her cuisine, and I called her one day and said, listen, I know you never wanted to teach your sons how to cook because in your mind, men shouldn't cook, even though I was vacuuming, uh, cleaning dishes, doing uh, ironing her clothes for work. The, her, her hard line was no cooking, <laughs> and so here we were in the pandemic. I was missing her food. I'm in a small town, New Hampshire. And I said, listen, I I just need to know how to prep chicken. Fast forward three years, my chicken is real bomb. I moved on to different meats, different fish. My protein game is fire. At least I think it is.
1: That's great. You know, that's all it takes. It takes one recipe is what I say. And then once you succeed at it and understand the base to it, then you can just, you know, kind of rotate different things into it and kind of go from there. And that's, that's the best part about it.
0: Tell me about your journey with cooking. Like, was it similar in your culture? And specifically, what I learned about you is that you grew up in Southern California and you are of Mexican descent. So yep. were your parents hesitant about teaching you how to cook? How did you come into chefing you know, it's, and whatnot?
1: It's definitely that culture thing. I mean, exactly what you're saying right there. You know, the especially the baby boy, I was the youngest of 10. The baby boy never gets up and gets his own plate, right? Uh, mama always serves it. Um, If he brings over a girl, you know, she's always got to get up and get the plate for him and things like that. I think it's just part of our culture. Food and family is kind of like derived uh, uh, around this whole body right here. You know, that's basically what it is. You grow up, you know, not a lot of income in our in our household. We didn't grow up like super poor. You know, both parents worked. Uh, Both my parents were police officers. Um, And so but, you know, our base every single night you sit around the kitchen table um we did we always had something to eat. we always talked about food we always talked uh what we were going to eat and then on the weekends we met up with family you know all our families there in southern california so every weekend you meet up every bring everybody brings over a ques- cazuela of something you know yep. and you just throw it down you know Dude, the tios and tias are opening up their bud lights and and there's something on the barbecue going you know and stuff like that the music's going And it's just kind of like the base behind it, you know. Um, It's what we had to share with other people that wanted to come and hang out with us, too. It's Food was the easiest thing, you know, and our family was the easiest thing for us to share. And the most inexpensive for us, too, you know. Like, who doesn't like going home with a plate of food, you know? That just means your stomach and yourself
0: is happier later on. Got it. And so we're talking about culture right now. You got into um, Theo's and, and Tia's visiting. And so this offers a natural opportunity to ask how you identify. I'd
1: like to say Mexican-American, Hispanic, Chicano sometimes. I guess it's kind of like all of that, you know. Um, I like to say Mexican-American a lot, too, because I'm proud to be an American. You know, my my father was deported 13 times before he came over into this country. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, he he has I mean, my mother uh, was an immigrant also um and led into this country eventually but my father started as a strawberry picker and went to a trash man and then as he when he was a trash man put himself into high school uh, at the age of 18 uh graduated with his gd and then went into college and decided to go into criminal justice and became a police officer and at one time was the most recognized most honored police officer in the state of California as an immigrant, as an immigrant that wasn't wow. let into this country or deported thirteen different times, and so I'm I'm very proud to be an American at the same time, yeah. but I'm very proud to be a Mexican
0: as well, and really support what our culture needs in America. And so your parents came here from Mexico. I think I read on your site that they came from the state of Jalisco. From Jalisco, yeah. And when did they migrate here to California? What led them to want to migrate to Southern California? You know, my
1: father started when he was 11 years old his 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 dad passed away and so he started he realized he was the oldest um and started making his way uh over the border um about when he was 13 and tried to make it over here and my mother came over when she was
0: 5 years old something like that so Okay and then eventually started a family yep. uh a family of 10 yeah so you, 10- you know well
1: my father had uh seven brothers or seven boys, eight boys from a previous marriage. And then my they met. And so we were all one big Brady Bunch after that, you know, kind of deal.
0: And now, do you remember the first time you thought to yourself, I want to cook, I want to become a chef? So,
1: my, you know, my parents, like I said, were police officers. They opened up a taqueria in Southern California when I was 11. Um, at that point, I worked at the restaurant um, every day after school. But I didn't know I wanted to be a chef then. I just, you know, knew that I would get my ass whooped if I didn't work.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you didn't have a choice? There was no negotiating? Yeah, yeah
1: there was no negotiating. There's no <laughs> negotiating with mama. There's no, she tells you what's up and you do it. That's right it. Right? I got you. Um, And so, you know, it really took, actually, I, I say this all the time. It took one fried bologna sandwich. I was with a friend and we were hanging out after school and I was making fried bologna sandwiches at my house. Like grilled cheese kind of style. And he's like, these are amazing. He's like, you could sell these things. And I was like, at that point, it kind of clicked in me. I was like, man, maybe I want to be a chef. You know, I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, And so that from there, I kind of just kept it going a little bit, you know, kind of experimenting. And then I decided, you know what, let me try out culinary school and see what it's about. And um, at that time, I decided to move to Minnesota. And I enrolled in a culinary, a French culinary school in Minneapolis there.
0: Um, Hold and, on, pause. Before yeah. you continue, these, I'm still stuck on the fried bologna sandwiches. <laughs> 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 so what what goes in a fried bologna sandwich?
1: <laughs> they were everything, you know. Uh, I would do, uh, my my specialty one was like a bacon, fried bologna, sliced pickles, sliced tomatoes. And bib and uh, arugula all in it. And then I would get the uh George Foreman out, or the I wasn't it was like a George Foreman, it was like a, a ghetto version of George Foreman. Yeah, yeah, uh, I would press down, you know. And but beforehand, it's all about frying the bologna in a pan with a little bit of oil in it, so it gets all crispy and kind of wrinkly. <sighs> and then you throw that thing in there. Woo! any seasoning on the bologna? No, straight up, straight up Oscar Myers, too. All right. Okay, do you still eat these sandwiches? Yeah, You're I not don't. on the menu. I don't. I should have one just to have a little nostalgia behind it. But yeah. to tell you the truth, we're we're vegan. We're vegan at home. Oh, really? 100%, 100% vegan at home. Yeah. Okay. That's part of your identity as well. You're a vegan. Yeah. My wife is ve- has been vegan since she was eight. Um, And she does 98% of the cooking at home. And so it pretty much makes the whole
0: family of vegans. You um, get a, you get the side eye from your family in Mexico when you go oh, back home to f- Southern <laughs> California. You're like, oh, I'm a vegan. I'm like, what that? are you talking about? You know what? It's the balance.
1: You know the balance. Mm. fonzas not there all the time because of it. You know, so like last night, I think we had steamed steamed cabbage with tofu and and rice. You know, it's like mm. so. It's like it, it, and then I come here and I get my little meat picks if I really need to. You know, <laughs> uh,
0: but hold but on. Yeah. Are, are you admitting to being a vegan on air?
1: yes i i'm a vegan uh, by choice at home you know and then come here i balance it out a little bit got you okay and i'm sorry i interrupted your story about i'm going to culinary school please continue that yeah so i went to culinary school in minneapolis and it only took like i mean culinary school was a little bit over a year and it only took like three months for me to realize like this is it i want to do this i love this you know um i think at the time i was working at an italian restaurant while going to school and i said i i want to dedicate my life to this um and so i got a job at a french restaurant and a a japanese restaurant okay uh, washing dishes at the japanese restaurant and i split my days over seven days uh while going to school i said i'm just going to commit my life to this to this career and uh it's kind of what i did you know i I decided right out of culinary school, I'm going to be the best version of this that I can be. And it's been an incredible journey since.
0: And while you were in culinary school, did you learn to uh, prepare a variety of foods or was the curriculum more oriented around Western dishes or Western yeah. ways of uh, preparing food? It was more based
1: on European
0: yeah. style, you know,
1: which is, they call it the the base of culinary arts. And I think it was great to have that base behind it. And then from there, I knew that that wasn't it, you know, I just, I really wanted to learn different aspects of, you know, the world cuisine, you know, they teach you like two weeks of international cuisine, which is, you know, who's going to learn international cuisine in two weeks, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. European stuff was like seven months of it or something like that. And so they kind of really beat that into you, which, which is great. You know, I really had my fundamentals down behind, you know, the sauces and things like that, but Um, then I kind of wanted to find my own path, you know, and, um, really my wife and I just from there, from Minneapolis, we uh, moved back to California and then from there, we moved to the Caribbean and stuff like that. And so we were, I was able to see so many different styles of cuisine by just moving around.
0: So how did you define your craft as a, a chef who could make really good Mexican influenced cuisine?
1: You know, I have the base, you know, obviously growing up behind it. You have to be open and receptive to the world all and all beings and everything like that. You have to cook with good energy. And I think that's, you know, really what is the base behind my food, you know, and that's the environment that we really breed here at Vida. It's like how much energy, how, you know, I say this all the time, this, we're not making good chefs, we're making good humans. Mm, and that right really is like what is going to make our food taste so much better.
0: And then so at some point you decided you and your wife in your journey. So you were in the Midwest, went to the Caribbean and you were in California and then said, my God, listen, let's go to New Hampshire. Right. And open a Mexican restaurant. We're going to call it Vita Cantina. uh, Please take me on how you landed in New Hampshire and said to yourself that this could work here because I would never imagine that (laughs) Haitian cuisine could work in new hampshire although somebody just opened a restaurant recently and i'm like oh yeah yeah i was just there the other day actually yeah my buddy chris opened it
1: up uh it's it's so good very very good and um but you know we were in california and i was killing myself trying to make a living out there it's so expensive and so erica my wife Said, you know, let's let's go back to New Hampshire and see if we can make it out there. The cost of living will be just that much better for us. Um, and so I didn't believe her. in being from the land of Tupac, we don't believe in the East Coast. You know what yes, I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Biggie Smalls I, is the illest. I just want to say that Biggie Smalls <laughs> is the illest one more time. All right. Yeah. all right, all right, all right, all right. So this uh, this podcast is done now. <laughs> um. So, you know, I said, all right, let's try it out. And if we don't like it, like, let's just promise we can come back. And our success story is I moved here. Um, I made $12 an hour when I first moved here, um, working at a restaurant and supported the four of us. We moved into this one bedroom apartment, so small. So we were so poor. I remember we'd we'd buy beans, rice, because I always got to have beans and rice in the household. um, And oatmeal. and Erica would we'd buy it in bulk and Erica would take half the oatmeal grind it up in the blender and make oat flour tortillas mm. and then stack that in the fridge and we'd have oatmeal for breakfast and beans and rice for dinner that's how poor we were at the time and uh but with while we were saving our money working I was the only one working She so we had two littles and uh within a year we afforded our house in Kittery wow. and so it was like mind-blowing to me I was like all right, this is saying something to us, like the world is speaking to us, like this is supposed to be our spot. And so in 2012, we bought a home in Kittery. And um, and um, then, you know, a dime a dozen as a Mexican restaurant in California or most metropolis areas, I was like, you know, let's really give this a shot and see what happens. Um And so we opened up Vita Cantina in 2013. And it, it wasn't easy. Happy 10 year
0: anniversary. Thank you. Right yeah. on. Okay. So you opened a Mexican restaurant. Was there already a Mexican restaurant in the area? And also, did you find that you had to adjust the cuisine much? Yeah. So, you know, something about opening up
1: a Mexican restaurant in New England. Yeah, there were plenty of them. Um, But there were, you know, I don't know what you call it, New England Mexican cuisine. Um, And so, you know, I think there's this uh, mindset up here that You know, all Mexican cuisine has to have yellow cheese, black olives, you know, and be super cheap. Um, But that's not what we wanted to do. We really wanted to support our community and figure out how we can put our community on the plate. Um, And so we opened up what we consider what we call a modern Mexican restaurant, you know, Um, and really supporting our local farms and things like that. And so um, their first four years were tough. From what standpoint? dishes alone you know i think enchiladas let's say it, you know i put on traditional style enchiladas to begin with which is you know like how my mother and my grandmother would make you you dip the tortilla in the salsa you fry it a little bit you stuff it um roll it up and then you put fresh stuff on top like a fresh salad on top yeah. um most new england is used to the casserole style kind of enchiladas mm. um, and so people would just come in and complain about it and complain about them so within 3 months I was like, all right, I got it. put on casserole style and enchiladas. And now they're, you know, everybody loves them. And so there was a lot of things that I had to say, okay, do I want my business to succeed? Or do I want to make, you know, do I want to stand by the food that I want? And so I kind of gave it that balance where I was like, I want my businesses to succeed. And once I get everybody to trust me and believe in me, then I'm going to hit them with the stuff that I really want them to try. And so that's where... I developed the regular menu and then I developed uh, our our daily specials, which really um, showcases my talents and everything like that. You know, the other very shrewd are very are very, you know, we put a lot of pride into them. But, you know, the casserole style enchiladas are are just not for me. You know, I just because I grew up eating such regular traditional style enchiladas, but it was okay. You know, We, we got I mean, I'm we we kept the doors open and my employees are very um successful uh because of these things and so i think i think yeah, I, ha- I had to find that balance behind it
0: i'm thinking about a mexican american or a mexican who comes to your restaurant based on how you develop the menu mm-hmm. and i'm now thinking that individual is going to look at the specials menu and say oh yo like this is this is what i'm looking for and then the other stuff they might say, yeah, uh, nah. have you ever gotten any sort of negative feedback from Mexican folks about the menu?
1: Plenty of times. Plenty of times. And you know, most of them I end up actually going out to their tables and talking to them and things like that. Um, you know, it's just, you know, you you get traditional Mexicanos that come in here and they're and they're at the same time looking for cheap eats, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it's just a balance that i have to go through on a constant i'm a little bit luckier now because you know like you said we've made it to our 10th birthday and we've been uh, awarded so many different recognitions now that people really trust us behind it but there are always going to be those people that you know they come in and they don't understand why we charge for chips and salsa yeah, i just yeah. had this conversation the other day with a customer as a, "I was going out to the host and she was you know, I could hear it in her voice that she was upset that we charge for chips and salsa. And I said, well, do you know that we grow 30 acres of corn here on the seacoast? And that corn that is supporting the local family here that they, you know, that they put on their, or that they grow on their farm, this corn. But at the same time, we all um, practice regenerative farming. So you eating the actual uh, tacos or chips at Vita reduces the amount of carbon footprint that is in in the seacoast area just by doing that because of the practices we follow behind our type of farming, which is not a cheap way to farm either. And so those things alone are the things that we have committed to our community by opening up our restaurant. And how did the customer respond? She was, she was, it was like eye opening. At first she didn't, she couldn't believe I was talking to her in that form, you know, but I just really want It's, you know, it's been like this since the beginning. We really have to educate our customers behind what we are doing here. Yeah, yeah. A
0: few summers ago, actually several summers ago now, I started selling my mom's food. And And one of the initial things I found was my mom was resistant to making the food as she would for us. And she's like, no, like your clientele isn't going to like the food as you had it. I have to make adjustments. Like I can't put... Um, as much pima or hot pepper yeah. in the grill, in the fried pork. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, like give it to them as is. And like, literally every time she cooked, we would have this debate and um, she felt strongly that she couldn't be super authentic with it. That yes. story resonates with you. Oh yeah. I've, uh, in, a, in a lot of forms, you know,
1: I think uh, one thing we always say at, at our pre-meal, when we're talking about heat in our dishes, you know, that people we have a a meter we say okay is it a seven or is it a new england seven mm. and, that's, and that's kind of like our our meter behind our, some of our dishes you know because people can't you know uh understand that spice is a flavor that you need on on a lot of your food yeah. and that's kind of like our culture behind it is based on these chiles you know especially our dried chiles and that's what gives our a lot of our food it's its base, its depth and things like that. And so we had, there are a lot of things that we have to eliminate.
0: And so if you open this restaurant in say New York city, you would make adjustments to accommodate that clientele. Oh, definitely.
1: Got you it, know, it got to look at your demographic and it depends on if you want to stay open as a restaurant or <laughs> if you want, if you don't, you know, yep, yep. Um, and, and for me, I, this was what I wanted to do so I could support my family. And so if, Some of these dishes aren't, you know, for everybody. That's okay, you know, but now I've I've gained the trust of my community enough that um, I have a way that through the specials menu that I can showcase the things that I need to.
0: Would you say that New England Mexican food is Mexican inspired cuisine? Or would you say, no, this is Mexican food. There's no need to have the inspired behind it. Um, to water it down how how would you define uh Mexican cuisine in New England I would say it is Mexican cuisine
1: you know yeah. um I refer to it always as comida mexicana because Mexican cuisine is just fresh food you know mm-hmm. um and it, there's nothing to say that it needs to be you know wrapped in a tortilla or anything like that it's just food that is gone you know in Mexico we call it criollo which is organic basically grown mm-hmm. in your backyard yeah. um and so it's just food of the, that is criollo, you know, it's like what is grown in the backyards of these people of the community members that are around you. And so like we take that food and then we put, you know, our flavor, our love into it um, and, and make it what we call Mexican cuisine.
0: You said earlier that you grew up in Southern California and I learned before this conversation that the community you came out of in Southern California was predominantly Mexican and Mexican-American. Would you say that you experience being Mexican-American differently in New Hampshire than you do or than you did in Southern California? And if so, how? <laughs> oh, man, cool.
1: I mean, moving here, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you experienced it yourself, yeah. right? You're like, is there any other brown people in this area right yeah. now? Like, yeah. am I going to be the only one right now, you know? Um, and then you start finally diving deep into the community like you know when you walk at the store and you you give the brown man nod you know like I see
0: (laughs) and uh uh,
1: it's so yeah it's you know like it's it's definitely tough and you don't realize it until you know I did a uh a BIPOC chef uh event and I was amongst and we were doing this for like four days five days and we were just us like Fourteen bipoc chefs all together talking about food, doing food, doing dinners and stuff like that, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, how much do I miss this? So mm. much. Mm. You know? it's it's just something different being around uh, your culture or, or people that understand your culture so much more. You know, just the way we talk to each other, things like that. It's just it's it's so beautiful, and so I do miss it so much, but the, I think. New England has given me uh, a way for me to live with my family, a good environment for, to grow, to raise my kids in, and obviously my businesses as well. And so I, now I just want to take this platform and better those communities, you know, from the indigenous community, the Indonesian community. And and I think that's what's going to give me that that sense that I'm missing from back home.
0: Let me tell you, in terms of going back home, This happened to me two or three years ago. I went to a regular grocery store with my mom in the inner city around Boston. Overwhelmingly, you find Caribbean folk going to this spot and West African folks. If you need any sort of Caribbean ingredients, you go to this place. So anyway, I'm in the spot. And for the longest time before I moved to New Hampshire, it was just kind of like, okay, this is where I take mom to get her groceries. Uh In this instance, I got there and this feeling overcame me, a a feeling of familiarity. It felt great to be there. I didn't want to leave. I felt so good about being there. And my mom probably didn't notice it, but I was just basking in the environment (laughs) because out here, while I enjoy elements of living here, being close to the beach, um, right. The bartending out here is tremendous. By the way, everybody, Vita Cantina Bar, yo, they mix really well. I'm just <laughs> letting y'all know. Um, so, but while I enjoy those elements of being in New Hampshire, I don't love looking up to find somebody staring at me. Yeah. And I don't know why they're staring at me. And yeah. like, I gotta figure out, is this a friendly stare? Are they curious? Yeah. I, I I don't enjoy it. And so when I'm back in Boston in um, Dorchester, Mattapan, even Brookline, where I just blend in, and yep. it's familiar. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's definitely uh, something to be said about, you know, but the, there's these, you know, we have such a great community of people, you know, mostly everybody that was at the, at the 3S the other night, you know, that are doing so many community action uh, things, you know, but I know you said you, you interviewed Tanisha. Uh, I, I mean, it happened to me when I was at the Black Excellence Awards the other night, uh, and I was like, Oh my gosh! You know, and I talked in front of people before, but for some reason, listening to everybody's story that night and just knowing that the support group that we have here is absolutely amazing, and they and they want to be here too, and they want to enjoy this area as well as much as everybody else. But we need these support groups all together, and so I, I stood up on stage to go talk, and my voice was just shaking, and just oh, so overwhelmed with like such emotion behind it. I was just like, "Wow, this is so, so, so powerful, so, so excellent."
0: And speaking of community, I'm going to close out this conversation here with a question about the ways in which you support the community. Um, I know that uh, more recently you started a festival, or you co-sponsor a festival. Can you talk a little bit about that festival and what inspired it?
1: As officially, I have we have a uh, 501c3. Um, called cultivate and so cultivate is runs two projects one is called the New England bipoc fest um this year will be the third one um and it basically started with myself and Evan mallet he's the chef at the black trumpet and it kind of started uh on the America's uproar on racial justice after the George George Floyd killing mm-hmm. um, and we said you know we really need to start using our platform a lot more and so we said you know maybe we recreate this BIPOC festival. Um, and so we didn't know what it would become. Uh, we uh, asked Joe Kelly of Cup of Joe and the assistant mayor to become on board with us. Um, and we put this thing together and it was incredible. It was, we had over 750 people here the first time. Nonprofits, you know, restaurants, music. It was just a day under the sun of just celebration. Last year we had over 1,400 people. Um, and this year is just shaking Whoa be such an incredible event already i mean we have from mariachi bands to west african drummers and dancers to hip-hop artists just like it's just a full day and just all the restaurants i think we have a total of like 40 restaurants that are here giving out all free samples it's free to the public because we want to make it accessible to all types of income and it's completely sponsored uh you know funded sponsored by who uh so many different sponsors our big one is service credit union And then we have like the James Beard Foundation and then different personal or private sponsors as well. You know, every year it just seems to get better and better. And the people that we had getting involved in this, um, you know, eventually it's gonna turn into the the United States BIPOC Festival for sure. It has so much power behind it. Um, So that's kind of like one of the initiatives that we have behind Cultivate. And the other one is uh, something that we started about 12 years ago. Um, It's called the Heritage Harvest Project. And so the Heritage Harvest Project, we take uh, indigenous seeds from this area and plant them. So we have a one-acre garden. um, And we tried to, like last year, look at this. I have it right here, actually. This is our success story right here. This is otophilae, which is a eight-row flint corn. Um, And so basically, we find seeds that have been heirloom indigenous to this area and that are becoming extinct and we plant them we grow them and we gain data on how we can quickly reintroduce them back into the community wow so, and then we have a seed bank that we save these seeds at but this story right here the this otofile tells a story of uh basically Europeans coming over here colonizing this area it's taking Um, from the indigenous people of this area and then taking this back to Europe and using it as polenta. It's basically the corn that we would use as polenta. Um, But because they did not, they just took and did not, you know, talk or understand how to retain its nutritional value. History shows us that actually these Europeans for years on years actually died because of not retaining the nutritional value thing corn and then eventually this corn now has made it back to the americas and we're helping save this seed but this look this is the incredible story behind this this project is we find seeds like this that tells us stories of basically you know colonizers coming over here and taking these seeds and things like that and and taking it for themselves and not really understanding how to retain these nutritional values you know so these little seeds can tell you so much history behind so much wrong that has been going on in these states not just a chef but also an activist and an educator right on (laughs) that's what we have to do right that's it you know we got to look at life a lot more different you know
0: we just have to have that we have to work that a little bit extra harder for what we have yeah very much so and i appreciate you coming on the podcast to have this conversation and for those of you who don't know about the podcast, as I'm sure um, newer people will check it out when I say, hey, I had a conversation with Chef Vargas on the podcast from Vita Cantina. They'll wonder what the podcast is. It's really an opportunity to allow folks to reflect about aspects of their identity that are important to them and why they came into being, and along with how they experience those aspects of their identity, with the hope that if enough people listen to these conversations We'll be a little bit more empathetic about how people move through life and treat them a lot better as a result.
1: I love those words right there. That that word empathy right there just it resonates so hard with me for sure. So I appreciate you saying that.
0: Special thanks to Chef Vargas for joining me on the podcast. He actually recorded this conversation with me from a back room in his restaurant. That just goes to show how important community building is to him among other things and fostering understanding between people. Be sure to check out Vida Cantina in Portsmouth, New Hampshire if you have yet to do so. I also wanna shout out Eric Schultz who produced the theme song for the podcast. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations with the variety of guests that I feature and follow the podcast on Instagram and Spotify for new episode alerts. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, Keep reflecting. I and me. Identity.